Hello and welcome to A Year with the Beatles, a limited series of podcasts exploring virtually every studio album by the Beatles month by month. My name is Graham Burke. On our fourth episode, we'll talk about Beatles for Sale and listen to the Beatles at a turning point in their music. And we're listening to the Fab Four's felicitations to their fans, so stick around. Once again, joining me on this sifting through the runes of Beatles history in album form is Rob Jones, a music critic and writer for the music blog The Delete Bin. How are you, Rob? I'm doing well, Graham. Thanks. And joining us this month is Joanna Ashwanden, a writer, blogger, and a former teacher. And in fact, she taught both Rob and I high school English. Hello, Mrs. Ashwanden. Hello, Graham and Rob. Nice to see you again. I hope we're not yeah. in trouble. Um. <laughs> I'll tell you afterwards. <laughs> if I say you've got to come and see me, you'll know you're in trouble. <laughs> Oh, man, I'm getting marked again. This is bad. (laughs) (laughs) So to very briefly recap, we're listening to the 12-ish Beatles studio albums every month, and we're talking about it on a podcast, and that's the deal. And with that pricey of our premise taken care of, let's go to this month's selection, uh, Beatles for Sale, which was released just in time for Christmas on December 4th, 1964. So here's Beatles for Sale for you in two minutes, more or less. This happened once before When I came to your door No reply They say Although I laugh and I act like a clown Beneath this mask I am wearing a frown So my love, I must go. Mr. Moonlight, come again, please. Here I am on my knees, begging if you please. Hey, 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 baby, hey, baby, oh my God, hold me. Joanna, you literally received this as a Christmas present in 1964, right? I did, I did, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, it was my first 
Christmas present of a record. And I obviously asked for it my, you know, myself, and I can still remember just opening it up and the excitement of it. And there, it was my first one, so it's just so soaked in nostalgia, you can't believe it. As I said, I, uh, I was 13 when I opened it that day, uh, and uh, which was the same age as I first met you, you two guys. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> what is it like to come back to that album after all those years? Nostalgia is, is, is so strong with me. It's so sharp. And it just gets you right in the guts when you put it on. It just, I don't know, so your childhood comes back, you're... All those sort of feelings come back, and and but they're so familiar mm. as well. The, the songs yeah. are so familiar, and all of them kind of get to the end, and you immediately know, you know, how the next track's going to start. It's all it's all there, fixed forever in your head. It's yeah. true. It's true. And and I I mean I came became a fan of the Beatles um, around the time I was fourteen, about the same age. And and actually when when you were my English teacher. And uh, and there's a lot of songs on this album that I mean we didn't have Beatles for sale in Canada. We had sort of Beatles '65 and a couple of other kind of weird American. But you know I, I remember a lot of the songs on this album like Rock and Roll Music and I'll Fall the Sun and with the same kind of nostalgia. It's that this was actually. I think I'm right about this. I think this was the first Beatles album I ever bought on CD. I bought it at Sam the Record Man uh, in Toronto in the glory days of uh, music <laughs> retail. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think this was the first one. I don't, I don't quite remember why I picked this one because I, I, I was going to go for one Beatles album and I picked this one. I don't remember exactly why that was, but I'm kind of glad it was this one because... It uh, and we'll talk about this a little later on, but it's sort of unloved uh, in in many ways when compared to a lot of their other albums. Like this is one of their albums that aren't quite as big, and uh, you know you, when you when you hear music critics and things like that talking about their best or their favorite Beatles albums, this one rarely gets a look in. But I'm I'm glad I chose this one because. It, it kind of has a, a special place in my heart. Well, and since you've already raised it, Rob, it nicely pivots to, to my next question, which is that, there, as you say, there is almost a sort of received wisdom that as the Beatles recorded this towards the end of 1964, after this year of supernova intensity of touring, making a film and general worldwide domination, that this album was sort of a quick cash in and uh, which is why they're sort of back to doing an album that has half covers. But you obviously have a very strongly worded different view to this. Well, I, I can see the argument for that. You know, like I, I can totally see the argument for, oh, this is just a stopgap, you know, just to capture the market at the end of a busy year and stuff like that. And you can tell like that the, even the cover of the album, you know, all four guys look totally, you know, exhausted. You know, they kind of look, it's like, oh, 1964, you're kicking my butt sort of thing, you know. And uh, but but the actual songs on the album, I, I just don't see how someone can say that he, after hearing No Reply and Babies in Black and I'm a Loser and. They're wonderful songs. Yeah, like how, how yeah. could somebody say that that you know oh that's just a stopgap that's just them on autopilot whatever it is and sure get the fact that they're coming off of after having recorded uh, a hard day's night with it was all their original you know songs on it and this one has a bunch of cover versions it seems like a step backward but I just don't think it is in some ways I think that at least a part of the reason why they recorded so many uh, classic rock and roll songs like Chuck Berry and uh, Little Richard and stuff like that Carl Perkins uh, tunes are on this 
is because they were they were trying to ground themselves after a whirlwind year. You know, that's what I think. And and that's really what comes through to me with, with this with this album. I, I do agree with you. I mean, it's hard not to listen to an album which starts with a song like No Reply and say this is somehow a step backwards. Like I think yeah. No No Reply is is a quantum leap in 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 the Beatles moving forward. It, it, it is such a stunning track and it's a wonderful song. I mean, it just grabs you as soon as you get the first song on the first side, and you just immediately launched into it. Wonderful. It is. Yeah, I think it has a certain dramatic. Uh, gravity, you know that song. You know it's it's sort of dark and dramatic. You know mm. it's like a melodrama. It's yeah, it's got a whole kind of blues narrative almost. I mean, it's a it's a heartbreak song. Yes, it, um, it tells a whole story. Yeah, as you say, it's, it's dramatic. And the music in it just is so that bit where they go, you know, I nearly yeah. died. Dun 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 dun. And then the next chord, I nearly died, and it's it's this sort of weird minor chord that I, I don't know the name yeah. of, but it, they were they were still kind of playing around with with chords and trying to see how the chords would affect the melody in terms of its mood. There's a lot of that stuff on this album. It's a song in particular that has such I call it coloring to it. It it, it has lots of colors in it, and and that's not kind of. This nicely segues into what we can talk about next, which is the actual songs on the album. And Joanna, what were some of the songs you liked most on the album? Um, well, I like those first three on the first side. I just love those. Um, although they are very black uh, kind of downers, and I, I kind of like the way you then get into the rock and roll music, the Berry song afterwards. It, it's a nice, a welcome change of tone, really. I think, I mean, I follow the song... Is, is a great favorite of mine. But I, mm -hmm. and then I think that most of all, the one that really grabs me most, it's hard to critique it because everything's so soaked in the nostalgia, but eight days a week, I just mm. adore that song. And I don't know, it's it, got it that is a fantastic clanging mm -hmm. opening, you know, it sort of fades up quickly to this wonderful, I like the simplicity of the, of the lyrics. Eight days a week. It's just very simple, isn't it? Eight days a week. Well, there's only seven days in a week. This is eight days a week. I love you. I'll, you know, it sort of says it all. That opening, like that clanging sound that you're you're describing, that always struck me as like sounded like church bells. I was wondering if that was ever the the inspiration behind that. You know, because it's it's such a it's such a great opening. The Beatles were great at, at creating great openings. They, they had, are. I mean, they had to they had to top themselves with a hard day. But eight days a week kind of does the same kind of thing. And Joanna, you mentioned the fade in. I, I love the opening fade in. It is such an original way to kind of open a song, and it just sort of takes you by yeah. surprise. And then that fading, then the clanging, and just that the kind of the hook. Eight days a week, I love. And I mean, mm. it's just it's a very positive life-affirming, love-affirming kind of song, really. That's yeah. Nice. Love it. Rob, what's your favorites? Oh, I have a lot. Uh, I have a lot of favorites on this. Uh, on this, I, No Reply we mentioned. I, I like that cause it's, because it's because it's so dark and dramatic and that type of stuff. Uh, the song that really, in terms of the, uh, the original song that I think I, I like the best is I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. I think that, that song uh, is 
harkens back to the Beatles' roots in uh, the Everly Brothers. That sounds like an Everly, Everly Brothers song. And in some ways, too, it, it, it harkens back to their writing for teenagers. Because it's a very teenager-type song, right? It's, you know, kids at a party and one is missing another. And, and, and I just, I, I like the, the, you know, the fact that they kind of reach back a little bit with that. And the harmonies, of course, uh, on that are just sublime. And I like all the sort of acoustic guitar picking on that. It's a country song basically. Uh, and it's, it, again, it's, it's the Beatles at their most Everly. I think for me, the song I loved was I'll Follow the Sun. And if you've been listening to this podcast from the start, you'll know that every month I ask, do we see in this album the Beatles who will revolutionize music? And I think we finally get it here. Uh, just for the purposes of a quick demonstration, I want to play a short clip of something. So that's the original version of I'll Follow the Sun that they did back when they were the Quarrymen in 1959 or 1960. And it's a sort of rockabilly and, and it doesn't really quite kind of work, and especially, especially the sort of middle eighth. And, but you listen to the version on this album. Someday you'll know I was the one But tomorrow may rain so I'll follow the sun And now the time has come And so my love I must go And though I lose a friend In the end you will know And I think it's a revelation. It's, I think after asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? The Beatles, we're finally here. It's a song from the band that's going to do yesterday in about six months. It, I think it's the coloring of the song. I think it's the rhythm. It's the use of the harmonies, which I would argue are more from folk groups like the Weavers and Peter, Paul, and Mary than girl bands this time. The, the use of the organ. Uh, it, it's not trying to do you know, superior British invasion stuff like Hard Day's Night or Mersey Beat stuff like with the Beatles or or Please Please Me. It, it feels like the Beatles. So my question, Rob, is are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, you're, you're mentioning the, the, the weavers and the and folk traditions and things like that is an important point. Um, just because at this time uh, in sort of history that was having a tremendous effect on 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 music in general you know with uh, Peter Paul and Mary as you mentioned and Bob Dylan you know Bob Dylan shows up uh, his influences show up a lot on this record particularly on I'm a Loser and so it, it shows that the Beatles are progressing in that they're beginning to take on a, a lot of the influences of their peers or a lot of what's happening uh, of you know their contemporaries around them and so we we definitely do see that here uh, and in some ways, the fact that they they're also recording old covers and things like that really brings that out in in the original songs. And and I'll follow the sun is a great example of that. Do you feel this is sort of the end of the cycle or the beginning of the cycle? Because for me, I I, I feel like it's the beginning of of a new cycle. Where do you stand, Rob? It is and it isn't. It's a transition, you know. Yeah. So it's sort of the, it's sort of both of those things. In some ways, I look at this album as a kind of a denouement, like a sort of a, a closing down of the first chapter of their 
er, their early career. But in, in other ways, because of the uh, with things we talked about in terms of their, their progressing and then taking on uh, other influences and being aware of what's around them, being able to integrate that into their music uh, shows that they're moving into the next phase at the same time. So th- this album is a transitional record, uh, and it's both an ending and a beginning at the same time, which may be the reason why it's uh, it, it has so much value. I mean, for me, I feel this album has more in common with Rubber Soul than it necessarily has in common with uh, with the Beatles. So I, I guess I would see it more as the beginning of, of the next phase than, than the ending. But mm-hmm. Brie, I, th- I think it sort of fades at one end as it fades up the other. I think so. I think that's I, I think that's the role it, that, that this record has in, in the canon. It helps to progress the, the sound along. Joanna, when you listen to this as a 13-year-old, did it sound different to previous albums? You know, as someone who was in the middle of Wales, in the middle of Bibliomania in 1964, did you notice such things? Or was it so gradual you just didn't pick it up? At 13, you know, we we just were involved with Beatlemania. I mean, we were, we were all crazy about the Beatles, uh, but mostly on a fairly shallow basis. Like, you know, they, they were these four handsome men putting out the wonderful <laughs> music and, uh, and, and everybody had a favorite Beatle and mine at that time. I remember it, it was Paul and and George because they, they were the most handsome. That that was uh, a, as shallow as I was then. Uh, and <laughs> as I grew older and became more mature, I think, uh, and their music became more mature, I kind of grew along with them. Uh, and changed my mind about you know who who I liked, who my favorite Beatle was, because you always used to ask your friends who your favorite Beatle was, uh, and it it became John because uh, he, well he for me was by far the most intelligent uh, and uh, creative uh, and the, the sort of strongest force behind the band in in every way really, <laughs> the one I liked best afterwards. <laughs> I got past the being handsome state. It's funny. I remember Joanna uh, visiting you twenty years ago, and you 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 had copies of both of uh, John Lennon's uh, poetry books, which, <laughs> which I don't think I, I. You were the only person I know who owns them. <laughs> well, we'll talk about this later, but you know. He plugs those, doesn't he, in the Christmas messages. He tells people to buy his books, and, and I actually had done did that without even having heard those messages before. <laughs> And I, I actually bought that one of those books, I think it was Spaniard in the Works, at the airport on, on my flight to Canada when I was 14, the first time I went to Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. I can remember buying it at the airport. My parents said that uh, we could have a book for the play. And that's the one I chose. Uh, so, uh, that must have been an interesting pl- read on the plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hard to read, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not really a light read, is it? No, it's no. sort of yeah. <laughs> Very bizarre. Yeah. Well, we've talked about this a bit already, but this is really the last time we get an extensive amount of covers on a Beatles album. Um, which are your favorites? I like uh, uh, "Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby," uh, the Carl Perkins tune that George Harrison does a- as the closer, uh, just because of the guitar work is just just knocks it right out of the park. When I last night, I did say late. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. And in some ways, 
uh, choosing that song was was very telling. You know, everybody's trying to be my baby at the end of Beatlemania. You know, it seemed like a good yeah. good theme. You know, to take and with and with Harrison, he was always kind of the taking the spiritual temperature of the band. You know, that was kind of in terms of the the, the songs that he sang and wrote. Um, and that's one of the first ones where, yeah, like right now, kids, everybody's trying to be our baby. You know, we're kind of tired. Yeah, there's two by that guy, isn't it, on, on this album? Honey Don't as well as written by... Yeah, Carl Honey Perkins. Don't is another Carl yeah. Perkins, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and... Uh, and and uh, and Ringo proves that he's he's probably the best at singing rockabilly of of the four. I'm probably more partial to Honey Don't than than everybody's trying to be my baby, but and partially because it's it's the first real Ringo song we get, which is great. It's so rousing, and I just love the kind of you know, <laughs> oh come on, play it to me, George. I love that kind of I love that. Oh. Yeah, he, he he's <laughs> like he's working the crowd, right? It it sort of shows Ringo's sort of uh, showmanship, you know, and there, a lot of the Ringo songs do that. Uh, another one I'm very, very fond of is is that uh, I, I assume it's Buddy Holly, but Words of Love. Yeah. But I just love that one. That yeah. It's, it's that fast clapping that they've got. That goes yes, that, that that that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember like that. It yeah. Just, it's like a sort of Spanish dancing rhythm. That's interesting. I love it. I love that yeah. one. Too. Well, that brings us, I think, to the end of our conversation on Beatles for Sale. But if you have anything you'd like to say, you can send us an email at beatles at gemgeek or rarebug.com. Or we now have a website. Uh, it is a yearwiththebeatles.podbean.com. Um, we'll work on a snappier URL in the future. Now, as ever, we, ha- we have what we call extra credit homework, where we listen or watch some Beatles material that complements the album we're listening to. And as this album was released in December 1964, this seemed like a good time to go listen to this. Hello everybody, this is Paul and I'd just like to thank you all for buying our records during the past year. We know you've been buying them because the sales have been very good, you see. Don't know where we'd be without you really, though. In the army, perhaps. Oh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the records (laughs) as much as we've enjoyed melting them. (laughs) No, 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 that's wrong. Making them. We're in number two studio at the moment at EMI, taping this little message for you. Yes, we are. We are indeed. I just thought I'd make the... This is the same studio we've used all along since the old days of Love Me Do. So many years ago, it seems, oh, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, those are the days. <laughs> well, Stop that's about it. all, I think. That's a clip from the Beatles' 1964 Christmas message to their fan club. Indeed, we listen to all of the Beatles' fan club Christmas messages, and I would almost hasten to say, so that you don't have to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles did these from 1963 to 1969, and they're very easy to find on YouTube. If um, Before we get into those, though, uh, Joanna... You weren't ever a member of the fan club. And no, I wasn't. So, so you didn't listen. So you didn't no, listen. To I them. hadn't actually heard these before. Uh, in, well, at least as far as I can remember. Um, but it, it was it was very interesting to listen to them. I I, I did enjoy it, and I I thought it, well I listened to them all. It's quite fascinating the way that it kind of follows their their career in a way. It does. It really does. Yeah, it's it really true. does. Yeah. That changes in 1966 when they kind of take it over themselves, hmm. and it's this, you know highly developed sort of weird in places, but uh, quite wonderful uh, and very long and involved. Uh, the first three are just kind of 
silly voices and thank yous and they're not taking it too seriously. Or somebody else wrote it, I think, didn't they? Yeah, and then someone else has wrote yeah. it and they're sending it up. Or yeah. and I think they're I think they're drunk on at least one of them. Yes, <laughs> they, I, I think that's probably true. Yeah, so <laughs> certainly, yeah, they're completely mad. They they they're quite goon-like in their delivery. Do you know what I mean by the Yeah, 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 they are very goon-like, it's true. But yeah, it's fascinating to me, to me if you listen to them all together, is because I think if you listen to them all together, you get kind of what I think an acid trip would be like from start to finish. Yeah. It's a bad acid trip. <laughs> chatty and silly, and then it gets intriguing, <laughs> and then it gets intriguing and weird, and then it ends with everyone in isolation. <laughs> so how did you find it, Rob? I thought it was interesting uh, for all the reasons that uh, Joanna uh, mentioned uh, about it sort of showing a, uh, a progression, uh, you know, and it kind of parallels their music in some ways. I think that was probably the most interesting thing about it, you know, like it starts off in the in 1963 and, you know, they're kind of joking around and whatever it is. And, and the fans probably had heard a lot of this type of thing from listening to uh, the Beatles on the radio because they did a lot of radio shows. Uh, and they read out fan letters and things like that and said thank you. So that it, it, it was kind of in that same vein. But as Joanna mentioned, uh, by 1966, they were writing uh, their own scripts uh, for, for these things. And so they, they got weirder. And uh, I think that the mentioning of the goons is very well observed because, you know, they'd been fans of the goons for, you know, ever since, right? Uh, and so... It, it totally plays into into their love of you know wacky surreal comedy uh and 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 some of the some of the ones actually did make me laugh you know like they're they're really mostly because they're having such a good time just you know goofing off you know my favorites are the 1966 and the 1967 ones because those are the ones that they i mean the the 66 one was done as a christmas a parody of a christmas pantomime it's very good mm -hmm. like and then and then the second one is just a full on goon show style radio show mm -hmm. and they have george martin producing both and they've got specially made music for them our story opens in corsica on the veranda is a bearded man in glasses conducting a small choir Elves, two elderly Scotchmen munch on a rare cheese. Mm, wonderful stuff, this Agnes. Ah, it's wonderful stuff. They're really putting an enormous amount of effort into them, actually. Yeah. And they're and and they're very very funny. Um, especially the '67 one. I think too that uh, it's important to note that by sort of the '66 and and into '67. Uh, all the Beatles were uh, had their own sort of tape loop machines, you know, and they were they were constantly making uh, experimental tape loop type stuff. Uh, and I think I think that probably fueled their uh, their enthusiasm for for this, you know, because they could do whatever they wanted, you know. And then and then by the time you know the White Album came around, you know, John Lennon really went for it, and he actually created Revolution Nine, which is not too far away from what we're hearing here. In some ways, no. Yeah, some uh, ways. 1968 one is a lot like Revolution Number no. Nine. I yes, it's, it's true. Like Revolution Number Nine for Christmas. Mm. <laughs> but, and 
then Tiny Tim singing on there. And yeah, what was that about? <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's a song I did in 1966 in front of Miss Jill for the first time. And I did this in Albert Hall. And what a thrill it was uh, to do this then and now. Exactly, I did it then. Here's a For, for a second, I thought it was somebody doing an impression of Tiny Tim, but it's not. It's it's actually Tiny Tim. I, I mean, Joanna, you said it earlier, but I think you're right. You basically get to sort of see the band in miniature. It's, it's you know, they start out, you know, chatty with each, chatting with each other. They're somewhat drunk. And then they move to real experimentation and sort of doing what they're doing in the studio. And then it sort of becomes a perfunctory exercise where no one's talking to each other and they're all recording their bits separately. And the 1969 one is basically John and Yoko just basically chatting away. Yeah, that's right. They take over completely with sort of dialogue about a teddy bear and John interviewing mm -hmm. Yoko and he might he's remembering oh it's meant to be a Christmas uh, I'll sing Good King Wenceslas that'll make it Christmassy and then they go back to all they want to do really is talk to each other and, <laughs> and sort of show off in a way yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's sad listening to that one I thought mm. how much he lets her take over i mean i've mentioned my favorites so did you have a favorite among among those uh joanna i think well i like 67 as well i love the the stuff about in the, the repeated motif about plenty of jam jars <laughs> and in hospitals recent heavy fighting near blackpool mrs g evans of solihull was gradually injured she wants for all the people in hospital plenty of jam jars by the ravelers Plenty of jam jars, baby. Plenty of jam jars for you. For you, baby, yes, Plenty of jam jars, baby. Plenty of jam jars for you. Plenty of jam jars, baby. Plenty of jam jars for you. How old are you? 32. <laughs> Never. I am. Get away. It's just the kind of thing that you sort of, you get on the radio quite a lot in, the, in Britain anyway. <laughs> Still, mm. you know, sort of things like that repeated and uh, can, can be a bit tiresome at times, but, but funny too. I like the I like the uh, I guess the sixty eight one where Ringo is talking about uh, you know this is a private line. <laughs> I, just, I don't know if you I don't know if you remember that one. I don't know why I found that so funny, but I've just, I just I thought that, that was kind of a laugh. You know, oh, it makes no sense at all. That, that line, they lived happily ever after. And who can blame them? <laughs> 
it's, it's interesting to me about this is that it's evidence that the Beatles really engaged their fandom, for lack of a better term. Um, and I don't really think of them sort of interacting with their fan base like this. Uh, but... you, you get the impression, though, that that the, 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 the purpose of the of the recordings was pretty far afield to when they actually got down to it. And they were really just goofing off. Let's face it. You know, it, it could have been for anything at that point. And I, I think. This this was a different era, you know, where bands had this obligation to, you know, to, to do this type of promo promotional stuff, which is kind of, it's hard to imagine now in this same way. Mm. But uh, they really changed the, they really changed the, the uh, you know, the, the intent, I guess, you know, with, with these types of recordings. And they were just having fun, you know, and they were just kind of, you get the impression that they were just kicking out the jams a bit with these things. Not uh, no pun intended with the jams thing, but it, it's funny to me because you know it, it's for something that they're just sort of doing as a laugh. You know, they're bringing in George Martin to produce. To the... He must have been in his element too because he actually produced the goons. Exactly. So you know, it's it's true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, perhaps he suggested it. Yeah, you never know. And it's kind of and it's I like I love the fact that it's kind of a family thing too. I mean, they have John and Ringo's kids at various points doing album art. I, I just I just I just kind of I kind of love that kind of aspect to it. Well, that's all the time we have. We'll be back in a little while for a discussion of the Beatles' fifth album, which ties in with the 1965 feature film, Help. That's next time on Year with the Beatles. In the meantime, thank you, Rob Jones and Joanna Ashwanden. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Joanna. Thank you. I'll send you a mark later. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm Graham Burke. We'll see you next time. It's a private line, you know. Private line? I've been on this line for two years! <laughs>